I just sat back and waited for the calls to come rolling in of like, you know, Urban Outfitters wants me to do their catalog or Wyden Kennedy wants me to come and and do a campaign for them. Yeah. And uh, that phone did not ring. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Did I Do That? It's a podcast about making graphic design and making mistakes because it's all part of the process. I'm Sean Schumacher, and joining me today, a very special guest. Uh, Previously, he served as a creative director for 15 years at North here in Portland, where he did a little bit of everything from creative thinking to strategy, art direction, design, film, music, digital, writing, and so much more for brands like Columbia Sportswear, Focus Features, Hydro Flask, Stanley, and many more more on top of that he serves as creative director designer and co-owner of imaginary authors a niche fragrance line and finally with his wife eden dawn is the co-author and illustrator of the portland book of dates which might be the single most beautiful book about portland i've ever owned and is available at bookstores just about anywhere it's ashad simonia and hi hello hello thank you so much for being here so much sunshine It's so sunny in here. It's really the 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 sun shines down upon us in this windowless room. Um, How are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. It's Friday. It's Friday. Got to have fun on Friday. From what I I hear, I won't sing the song, but (laughs) but the the joy is in my heart. That is, uh, I mean, that's the way to be. It's it's kind of end of summer. Really, it feels like end of summer because I think it's the first day of fall. It it is it really? I think. Oh. Well, I I was just saying that because I hear that the rain is coming back oh, on yeah. Monday and we'll be here forever after that. Um, friends, if you're not from Portland, you should know that it it will maybe be fun for summer and then then there will be a hard, a hard turn <laughs> into yeah, the watery it times. It is always, and it sneaks up on you. It's like, uh, it's the, the leaves start to change and it's so beautiful and the air is crisp and the coffee tastes better. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh. <laughs> fell for it again oh no there's no leaves anymore <laughs> yeah it's barren dead and dry and cold and damp for the next eight months why did i say dry it's the opposite of dry it's the most oh, yeah. wet that's sort of the key characteristic we'll edit that out later uh yeah yeah uh rutabaga rutabaga i will i will fix <laughs> fix wet for dry well i was i was thinking about sort of this end of summer vibe because i i actually this has been a, a fairly busy summer for me and i didn't really get to do much um, but I was I was reading through the the Portland Book of Dates before this, and I was noticing you actually proposed to your wife at a place I had never been until this past weekend. Whoa! The uh, the Enchanted Forest. Enchanted Forest. Yeah, it's one of the most magical places on earth. It truly is. <laughs> yeah. Is. I I didn't know what to expect before I went there, but it truly is an incredible. I didn't thing. either. I had never been before. My wife grew up in Salem, and so she had been quite a bit. Oh yeah. Growing up, it's right. It's basically just south of, yeah. of Salem. And you know, we had something similar. I grew up in Fresno, California, and we had storyland and it wasn't as beautiful or um it's just there's such a a loving artistic vision behind this place and yes the reason my wife was uh we were we went the day that i that i proposed she was doing uh an interview she was a a style editor for portland monthly and she's doing a story for portland monthly 
And it had been her dream for years. She's like, I want to do an Enchanted Forest story. And she finally got the thumbs up. Ugh. And so she was off interviewing the man, like the, the kind of the Walt Disney of this place, who who dreamt it up and started building things out of cement in his backyard. Oh, this is... Uh, 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 Roger Tuft, Tuft, Tufty. Tufty? I believe. I was not sure. But he was still alive at that point. I think he is still alive. Oh, is he still? <laughs> I think he's still with us. <laughs> Rutabaga, Rutabaga. Oh, no. I Sorry, Roger. But he is very old, and but he was still cruising around on his little scooter through the park. And, and so much of that stuff is made by his hands. Yeah. And it, it truly is a craft person's paradise. It's so fun. And I was so moved. I knew that I wanted, like, when I was there, I was like, this is where I want to propose to my wife. This yeah. is the place. But we had, we were there already. It just felt weird. Like, how am I going to get her back here without her? No- like, she would know that I was going to propose if I if we somehow came back in the next whatever year. And, and so you, there's also a hard time limit on that because like September 30th is I think the end of their sure year. right yeah they're they're closed all winter long yeah. And so I just, it struck me. I was just so uh, moved by the place that I went to the gift shop and I bought a ring at the gift <gasps> shop. And when my wife got out of her interview, I was like, let's go back. I wanted to see the, the, that cave again, the Snow White Seven Dwarf Cave. Let's go I back there. I know exactly the cave. And there's, yeah, neon waterfall. Yes. My favorite it's part. So, it's so stunning and so magical. And I was, I was like, this is where I'm going to propose to you. And then sure enough, that's how it happened. It was yeah. completely unplanned. I did not know when I woke up that morning I would be proposing to my soon-to-be wife. Wow. To think like you didn't even have the ring. You had bought the ring there. Yeah. And I also just love that it was the exact spot that I loved the most. <laughs> Right. I mean, it is. I, I definitely picked the best spot Absolutely. on the property for sure. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, this is like there's there's a bunch of these concrete kind of figures, which are the original like Tofty like craftsmanship. We we sat and we watched this little documentary in one of the things about like this is a theme park that's made by a guy, <laughs> just a guy who would repair watches and then use each watch repairer's money to go buy a bag of concrete and, like, sculpt these figures. Yeah, where are these people today? I don't know. <laughs> like, I can't imagine you could do a thing like this anymore. But, like, at some point, you you get through a bunch of those, and they're pretty interesting and, and kind of fun, and, you know, they feel throwback. And then you get into this cave, and this music that his daughter made... Uh, who's an incredible musician who's like studied in, yeah. you know, Europe and everything. And it sounds very Mort Garson-y, very, uh, you know, like it's spooky 70s and yeah, spooky and cheesy, but like it's yeah. so perfect. And just these like the most like hallucinogenic colors all throughout this cave with like black lights on yeah. them. I don't do a bunch of drugs, but I... I... <laughs> <laughs> and I think if I did it, it probably wouldn't even be this good. But no. this is what I imagine good drugs would, would do. It's it's sort of the idea of drugs in a movie um, for kids yeah. that, you know, maybe is maybe shouldn't have been for kids. Right. <laughs> no, it's very psychedelic. It's very, I mean, it's very romantic. That's how I was so moved. It was like, this is a magical place that I want to begin this magical relationship. And it worked. It worked, yeah. It was a yes. You got married. You didn't get married in the park, I assume. No. No. No, but it was, um, I mean, it could not have been more perfect. You know, I'm a romantic and I was scrambling to try to think of, you know, I've heard of people going to like Proposal Rock. Yes. And you, there's these, it's, there's so much pressure 
behind getting it right. And I, yeah. I just could not figure out what our special thing would be until I saw it. And I was like, oh, this is the special thing and it's happening right now and I got to I got to get on it. It, I mean, it makes so much sense because it is such a unique place and such a unique moment. And it was uniquely us. It was yeah. like such a like we're we're kitschy, we're weird. Um, we always whatever we stop at every rundown roadside attraction. <laughs> That's our mo. So it was, yeah, it was perfect for us. The mystery hole. The yeah, uh, all of those. My favorite roadside attraction in California. The I believe it's the Baker World's Largest Thermometer. <laughs> wow, it's terrible. It's terrible, but great. Yeah. It's the only thing in town, basically. Yeah. we uh, When I was a kid, we went to the world's largest frying pan, which oh. is just in Long Beach. We go there all the time now because there's another beloved spot called the Southwester that we like to spend our weekends oh, at. Oh, yeah. That's a great... And I think the frying pan is still there. They also have like the world's largest chopsticks. <laughs> like really going for it. They, they're trying to corner the market yeah. on the world's largest <laughs> yeah, exactly. food instruments. I think something happened with the frying pan. They actually had to take the sign down. Like somebody had come up with a bigger frying pan what i know the nerve how I, of all the things i mean we've we've got to keep ahead so we've... embarrassing also spend so much time building a giant frying pan <laughs> only to have it be the second yeah. biggest frying pan it's it's so hard to imagine too that you embark upon that the second time after reading someone's already done it someone has someone has made the world's largest frying pan and you're like i bet we can do that bigger yeah yeah. I don't want to do, uh, you know, a pot of boiling water or something like that. Yeah. It's got to be a frying pan. Yeah. We'll show those Washingtonians <laughs> what for. Amazing. Yeah. That again, it's a it's an era, it's an era that does not exist anymore. No, no. You you couldn't you couldn't really do a new one of those, which also makes the fact that it got defeated all the yeah. all the stranger. Um so yeah, I think that kind of goes into like some of the stuff that you ended up doing later, like the Portland Book of Dates, but like where did you kind of start on your journey Oh, creatively? funny you should ask. Please. I brought some artifacts you did. for you. You brought a whole like I brought the er- my here. earliest graphic design work that I thought I would share and hand over to you. Oh my god. What is this? I went to an Armenian school when I was a child. So this would have been like age six, yeah, seven. So this or is so. like a a workbook in the traditional sense. It is in Armenian too. It is in Armenian, yeah. It was it was teaching me the Armenian alphabet. And I I had not seen this thing. I my parents passed away. It's probably been like 10, 15 years now. And in cleaning out the house, I found this book that my mother had saved from my days of being in this Armenian school. Wow. And it's it's a bunch of Armenian letters. Yeah. And then from a design standpoint, what do you see there? I see some really interesting use of color. Like, right? It's You are not just like... I mean, you're keeping it within the lines, but you are also like... I would, rather you're than being just, awfully kind. Well, <laughs> but in a creative way, I would say. You're, you're, you're occasionally breaking the frame. But like... The fact that you are like stratifying colors and like blending things and like like this, I feel like is a like the way that it's sort of going purple, green, blue, like this sort of patchwork coloration yeah, every, is really in right it was, now. It too. was as if I had to use every single crayon <laughs> in the box. Wear them down. I have a giant 36 Crayola crayon box and I used every single one and I was clearly finding some uh some palettes i was i was definitely yeah. like getting deep into color theory yes at, at age six <laughs> look uh, at that number five it's just the number five and there's 
well, there's five different colors yeah. in there. I wonder See? if that was intentional. Conceptual. <laughs> you're, you're already a creative director in your earliest days. But I feel like the average person might just color the thing. But oh. I had to color, like, that dog is has a green tail, <laughs> red feet, a blue chest, yeah. yellow ears, a brown face, and a black body. You, you're trying to make the, the kind of dog you want like, to see in the me, world. To me, this is, like... Every once in a while, people ask, like, how how are you so creative? Or what is, like, where does your creativity come from? And that's, like, I want to just carry this book around with me because I have no idea. I've clearly always had. I think so. A weird, um, and it's like, it's not like I was trying to be anything, right? You're so unselfconscious of yourself at this age. Yeah. Like, this is just literally what the inside of my brain looks like to this day. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Look at that harp. That harp is great. <laughs> the elephant. I do. I mean, I want to call out this airplane, which is just at a. Could you imagine at, that if that airplane existed today, you would be like, "This is the greatest airplane I've ever flown on in my life." Very much so. But also, if it was at that angle, your tray table better be in the upright lock <laughs> position because otherwise, you're in you're in some deep shit. Um, it has one blue wing with a little bit of purple on it, one orange wing, and uh, a. Uh, the rest of it's kind of brown, but then yeah. there's some red, orange, green tail action. It's it's it is so joyful. If I could get on that plane today, I would like yeah. We need what? Yeah, why are airplanes not color blocked? Like yeah, why is airplane livery so boring? <laughs> I saw one this week that was just stripes. I want to say gold stripes, just kind of like a jailbreak vibes, <laughs> but uh, but kind of stunning and beautiful because i had never seen anything like it yeah so they're they are making some strides alaska airlines if you need some oh, um, yeah. some new thoughts hit me up so that's that's a good place to start like you are already out the gate you know getting ambitious and and you know playing mixing with color up, playing with color like where do you go from there like what what sort of connects you with i mean your creative i self later? i knew from such an i mean clearly this is an early age and then i have very strong memories of being 10 years old and watching scooby-doo and seeing the credits roll and asking my father like what are what are all these names and he's like oh those are the people that work on scooby-doo and i was like wait <laughs> you go to like you go to the irs every day for your work he worked and at the IRS. My dad worked at the IRS, Ooh. and and these other dads worked at Scooby Doo. <laughs> and I was like, "What are you doing at the IRS? You're doing it all wrong." <laughs> so I knew from age ten, like I had, like I had that plan. I I, I immediately took a photography class because that was the only thing that kind of came close to whatever that that was that I yeah. that I wanted to do. Was that in in high school? No, or? this would have been like 4th grade. I took a photography like a little oh, elective shit. class, yeah. Wow. After school kind of thing. Oh, okay. Probably oh. a teacher who was I don't know, trying to be a good a good dude. Like part of part of like a photography club yeah, or something. Yeah, he was probably like line. he probably loved photography and it was his way to get a black a dark room in the <laughs> school or something. Yeah, of course. Like I'll t- I'll teach these kids. Yeah, just give me this room and I'll uh, yeah, teach them. Yeah, whatever. Uh there you go. Here's cameras. That set me off. I took a graphic design class that was like a special it wasn't part of my high school, but somehow I gamed the system and figured out like how I could go to this other school to take this graphic design class in the oh, afternoons. Wow. And this would have been the era, it's just after the Apple screens turned from black and green to 
white and black. Oh, yeah, yeah. So everything was still just one color. But this program called Type Styler had just come out, which had, I think, six or eight fonts on it. But you could curve the font. You could do it in a circle. You could add a drop shadow. There's a few of these little tricks. Yeah. And it was basically for like sign making for yeah. for local mini mall, whatever your your sandwich business or ballerina school or whatever. And this would have been pre Macintosh too. It would have been Apple IIc yeah. or something. Because like I mean that was I, I think we often rewrite the story a little bit that like Macintosh is where like desktop publishing started. But there were a lot of like sign making tools for those earlier Apple computers. And that was where a lot of people got started with design. Yeah, absolutely. And and looking back on it, I find it fascinating now because I know of myself now that I love typography. Yeah. I love geeking out over fonts as a lot of graphic designers do. But again, to be in 11th grade and see Bodini for the first time and really like oh. fall in love with those serifs. And like there was a thing that was happening that I didn't realize was happening. And I only know it now being able to look back at like, I, I truly believe that this is a thing that you're, you're either born with or you're not. And if you don't get supercharged when you see a font, then like maybe typography is not the path for you. Do you remember any of the work that you were doing in that class? Like... Yeah, we did. I remember doing, I mean, the thing that I was most proud of was we, there was like a big, uh, I don't know what it was like a graphic design a challenge what would you call it it was a thing at the at the big fresno fairgrounds oh and like it was a, a competition it was a competition and there was a bunch of competitions for all of these different vocations and the vocation that i was a part of was graphic design and so it was to design a logo for a fictional place called the 52nd street theater and i whipped out that bodini that i was so in love with oh yeah and then i brought in a little bit of script and so it's kind of like it was it was a little bit show busy Captured and a little some bit Broadway vibe. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I got very very into it and yeah, stole the show first place blue ribbon. Hey, that's got to be a huge affirmation too. Yeah, like, and again, it wasn't like this was like a huge passion of mine. It was just a thing that I was good at. Yeah, and then, and then this was just affirmation that like that I was good at it. I guess. I, I mean, you you know you're good at it, but you're maybe still trying to figure out what it is that you actually want to do. Like, how do you how do you translate that once you get out of high school? Like, where do you go from there? Uh, well, I went so a, a few different things were happening at the same time. I also was at this age getting addicted to television. We know it started with Scooby Doo. Oh yes, later became like Saturday Night Live and that kind of thing. But I had um, you know VHS tapes of this of of the shows that I watched all the time, and in Fresno, you're in pretty close proximity to Hollywood. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a three hour drive. But once I got my driver's license, we found out that all of these TV shows give away free tickets. So we would just like write to whatever, Designing Women. <laughs> like, I don't even wow. watch Designing Women, but like, I just wanted to go sit in the audience of these places and yeah. see how this stuff worked. And so I had this, this other side of me was really into television and I didn't want to go to L.A., but I knew that's where the industry was. Yeah. So I went to UCLA because that's where the work was happening. And then around that same time, I was hanging out with friends who were starting bands. And uh, I was carrying a camcorder everywhere. I was not very musical, but I would show up at the shows and do all of the the documenting. Wow. And and I became very valuable to them because they all had giant egos and wanted to watch themselves on stage. <laughs> 
And so I would get invited to these parties to like come and show the video that I made at their show last weekend or, you know, that kind of thing. And so I was, I was, I had access to this kind of cool kids club just through camera work, through videography. You're the documentarian. I was the documentarian. And same with skateboarders. Skateboarders were very cool at this time. I could not ollie to save my life. But I could run alongside a skateboard and film it. And and so all of the skateboarders were inviting me to come hang out with them. Yeah. And so, yes, that was kind of my trajectory into it. And then I started falling more and more in love with music and bands to the point where I was questioning whether film TV was... And, and I was doing some film TV work at the time, and it was kind of awful. It was... Yeah. I, my first it's job... It's not as though there's a major strike happening right now. Well, there is that. that... <laughs> <laughs> Certainly suggest that. Um, my first job after, so I was a pizza delivery driver when I still lived in Fresno. And then I went, when I moved to LA, I got an internship at MTV. And my first paid job was at the MTV Beach House for a summer. Oh, no. In between semesters. I could see that being fun, but also a nightmare. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun and it was also a nightmare. Oh, God. Uh, what, yeah, what were you, were you doing videography there? I was a PA. Oh, you were a PA. I was a PA. So okay. I was, it was a little bit of just like whatever needed to get done. Yeah. I was doing it. And, uh, and it was producing segments or helping to produce these little back in those days. They were just uh, it was still a, a video show. So yeah. it was these different VJs who would give you a fun fact about <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> this... They, in fact, have lots of doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then I would have to log everything and and, you know, prep the tapes for the editor and and. It all happened on site, and I was telling my wife, we were in L.A. this weekend, and I was telling her stories from those days that I apparently had never told her, but I got strangled. This this producer had what? What? lifted me off the ground by my neck. Fuck. And I realized, it's kind of a longer story we don't need to go to on this podcast, but uh, it was just one of those things where it's a place that was run by kids, and kids who didn't have anger management yeah. uh, understanding, and this this misunderstanding had happened between us and I had done everything correctly and he thought I had done everything wrong. And then when it came out that I was correct, I kind of maybe rubbed it in his face in a way that I shouldn't have, but still does not give him the right to uh, strangle me. No, I would say not. And it turns out that like, uh, like we were all best friends after that. And uh, like looking back on it now, I'm like, I could have sued MTV. I could have like, Yeah, living was... in a mansion now. <laughs> but it was the people that I that I what Holy happened was shit. I was around film and TV people and they just weren't interesting to me. They weren't yeah. fun. And then I would go to these shows after work with my friends in bands and those people were that was my crew. Yeah. So I started to kind of transition into music. And again, because I was in L.A., I had access to Capitol Records, and so I did an internship at Capitol Records in Hollywood. Wow. So I was in that big, iconic tower. You're, like, at the intersection of all, like, the coolest but things this is at the that thing moment. I tell, I, tell, I tell younger people this all the time, is, like, anybody can be. Yeah. Like, I was maybe audacious and, like, naive enough to believe that I deserved it, but I also just was like, that's where it's happening. That's what I want to do. I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And you find your ways in, and especially with internships at that point. Like people wanted free work, yeah. And oh, so that, that is I would a very go in there, thing. and I showed up on time, and I stayed late, and I worked hard, yeah. and so I made myself valuable. And and then some of these people started wanting to keep me on, yeah, because they trusted me and knew that I got stuff done. And yeah, none of that was design related necessarily, but it, it all was culture related, and I think all of those things kind of bleed together. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so that's so interesting. So you are, as you're at UCLA, kind of learning like what it is that you want to do and and what you really don't want to do. And then like by the time you graduate, you graduate with a mass communications degree. Yeah, I, I entered the mass comm program because I was not accepted into the film and TV program. Oh, okay. And so mass communications was just kind of this this general, uh, I don't know, like it was, it was I don't, I'm looking back on it now, I don't even know what it was. Like <laughs> I, I took classes that were like feminist theory that were, that I took because it interested me, but- um, That's cool. But how that plays into a mass comm degree, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it was communication, some of it was interpersonal communications. It was oh, just, sure. it was very vague. Yeah. Um, but what ended up happening, like I said, is there's these internship programs. So I was able to get into these fields, even though I wasn't in the film program. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so my first jobs outside of that were working on music videos and commercials and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then the design came in because I, then I started playing in bands and all of a sudden we needed posters for our shows we needed flyers we well, needed album artwork and, and so that was my real like i know how to do this i did the 52nd street theater yeah first well, place and it's the same thing as like being the being the documentarian like you have this very important role of like getting the information out there that like you know it's it's got to fall to somebody and like if you can do it then you'll always have work with those folks absolutely and, and i was never uh sometimes maybe to, to my discredit uh i was never one thing i yeah. always was just like give me a task and i will be the best i can be at that task and and i kind of prided myself on not not being great at anything <laughs> well that but that's i think honestly i i always try to encourage folks not to over specialize in part yeah. for that reason like, i'm always jealous of specialized illustrators especially i'm like wow your art is so stunning. I, I would be so unhappy illustrating the same thing over and over. Like you, you, those illustrators, you're like, this is the thing I'm good at. This is the thing I get hired for. Yeah. And then you just get hired for it over and over and over again. And it would just be so depressing. I need to have my fingers in a lot of different pies. Yeah, I was I was listening. I, I, I A friend of mine from, from back home um, recently appeared on another podcast and I was listening to that. And he was talking about like, the way he got really good at illustrating was like he took the same piece and he worked on it for like two months. And I cannot fathom how yeah. that I mean, would... there's a time and place for that, right? Like yeah. there is a thing about, um, I was also just looking today, I saw uh, on my Instagram, an old friend of mine from Fresno is an illustrator in Portland and OPB did a piece on him. And he does these very intricate drawings. His name is Icho. He does murals around town as well. But they were going through his, his intricate drawings and, and he was... Um, you know, digging in, talking about how you could discover these little worlds. And I could appreciate for himself getting lost in those worlds. And yeah. I could appreciate the the mental health benefits of having a giant canvas and just filling it one inch at a time with these little tiny Easter eggs and how fun and gratifying that would be years later to go back and look at that stuff and, and yeah. see it for the first time again. But for me personally, that's like... Uh, it just sounds like torture. It does, and I think that's the that's the counterpoint. Is like I think being the good part about being a generalist is when you when there is something that makes you feel like oh I can't 
do this anymore. You can move on to the other thing. And that's really valuable. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's why I loved, I did not know that I would end up uh, working at an agency or that I would end up loving it. But the thing that I loved was that one day you're working on a commercial and the next day you're working on billboards and the next day you're working on a website and then you're working on music. And there's just, I just felt so, uh, satisfied to be able to play in so many different sandboxes yeah so you're you're kind of you're getting out of college now and getting into the music scene like how do you how do you start to like because i assume that's kind of where you get back into design doing that kind of work like what's the trajectory from there to to like by the time you move to portland i mean honestly it was uh i became a musician i I uh, I played in a band for a while and we we got a little bit of, you know, we were touring and had a little bit of uh, a very tiny amount of success. It was, you know, my, my bar for success at that point was wasn't very high. Oh, so that's, this just kind of became your primary focus is just playing music. Yeah, I wow. would do. It was funny. I, I had a little bit of a racket where I would uh, I would pick up jobs in L.A. working on a music video or a production. Yeah. And make a bunch of money because the the um, film industry pays well. Yes. Used to. I'm not sure if it still does, but yeah. it did at that point. And, and then I would take that money and go on tour and, and lose it all. But <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing it. And then uh, I was a very big fan of this band called Pavement. Oh, yeah. Dear Pavement. And uh, they were they were also from the Central Valley. And so I just kind of felt this kinship with them. And we were having a party after one of our shows one night. And one of the guys was there from Pavement. And so I was very careful not to not to geek out too hard on him. And through that, we became friends. And then when Pavement broke up, he asked if I would join his band. Oh, shit. And so it was a like, yeah, dream come true. I was like touring the world, playing uh, with all of my favorite bands. I wow. I am also uh like first and foremost a fan. Like yeah. I I always um and again across all of these different genres uh I I remember this is kind of relevant now because um this guy has a movie coming out but but one of my classmates uh in 6th grade was Adrian Tomine. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. And in 6th grade he there was the same reaction. Like Adrian Tomini was a superhero. Yeah, incredible and he's the one cartoonist. Who introduced us to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics way before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles became a movie or anything like Just that. Just like the pure indie, like yeah, he was so cool. Of, he knew yeah. he knew all the comics. He, he had this illustration style that was so. He always designed our yearbook covers. Um, I tried to find it to bring in, but I remember very vividly he had drawn a little doodle as like you know when you get your yearbook signed yeah and uh i had gone and like flipped the page over and tried to basically draw the thing that he had drawn wow and it was just a few lines it was like 80s so it was like a cool kid with a you know floppy hair and a collar and like sunglasses (laughs) but like it just looked like like it was such a good illustration yeah and i was so jealous of his illustration style that i tried to replicate it on the next page and it was the same six lines, but like mine just didn't look good and oh. his looked solid. And that's something I've grappled with my whole career. But the point of that story is that I have always been a fan and I've always been someone who who is curious and looking out at like what everybody else was doing and appreciating what other people were doing. And when when I started getting into the music scene, I think a lot of my 
whatever golden ticket was just like being very gracious and very um like i was so happy to be there and be invited into the room with some of these people that i never took that for granted it matters a lot it matters a lot and and i mean just to be just to bring good energy into those spaces like i i mean if if you can be there and be kind and be helpful like that sort of positivity in any environment is going to be like so valuable. Absolutely. And I should mention, like, I'm not a good musician. And I oh. I told this guy that straight up when he asked if I would be in his band, I was like, you know, I don't play guitar very well. Right. And he was like, that's fine. Like, I don't play guitar very well either. <laughs> and that's and again, this comes back to my career so often with design of like, I always felt like I wasn't a good enough designer. Yeah. And and what it comes down to is you you learn your tricks, you, you learn the tools to the, you know, you find that you make the tools work for you. Yeah. And the thing that I was hired for, I believe was, I was a joy to be around. I was not an awful drunk. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't picking up on girls and, and embarrassing the, the band. These are unfortunately rare things in the yeah, musical world. Absolutely. And I was responsible. I was like keeping gas receipts and like kind of taking care of the business side of things. And oh, so wow. like, I was just kind of, holding down the fort in a way that some of the other guys in the band weren't. But in all fairness, they were playing the right notes. <laughs> you got to have both things, though. You exactly. got to have both things. Um, I mean, just just to know how much money you have at any given time if you're on a tour is uh, pretty, uh, pretty fundamental. It's always zero. It's always zero. <laughs> what can you do? Um, so you're doing that for a couple of years. Yeah. Like, for like 10 years. 10 years. I was, um. That's a lot of years. Yeah. I was on tour all the time. I kind of became homeless. I bought a van. Yeah. And if I wasn't on tour with my band, I would find some other band to go on tour with because yeah. I had the, I had the tour manager skills at that point and I didn't have a place to sleep. And I was like, I'd rather sleep in a different fancy hotel every night yeah. than, you know, uh, my apartment. Yeah. So I just kind of had this vagabond lifestyle and at some point, obviously, like that stuff, like is not sustainable. And yeah. I was looking a little bit higher on the the ladder. There was, you know, I was again very lucky to have made friends with some of my heroes, and I would just see how unhappy they were in their positions and still not making money, still yeah. struggling. And you know, every time we came through Portland, it was so magical and so special. And we had so many friends um, in bands. Uh, our band had toured with the Shins in Europe, and those guys were all wow. buying houses in Portland. And I was like, how are you buying houses? Like that just like, it just was so out of the realm of, you know, living in LA. I just never even thought to, that that was something I would ever be able to do. Yeah. LA has just always been unattainable. Yeah. And then passing through, I would stay at their houses and I was like, you, you, this is yours. You own this. Yeah. That's so wild. And so, yeah, I kind of gave it all up and moved to Portland and bought a house. You could, wow, okay. And it was, that's a big shift from like totally having nowhere that you could like, you know, drop your bags off in to It was so naive. It, I thought that I thought um yeah, I thought it would be so much easier than it was. And I also thought, you know, I didn't realize that this this time, you know, my I paid zero down on the house wow. and uh <laughs> oh my god. There was no there was like no paperwork. They were just giving these loans away at that time. Yeah. And it was a really, really bad loan. It was the loan that ended up kind of destroying our economy oh, a those. couple years later. Yeah, that yeah. And it just worked out that I was a late adopter to this loan. And so when everybody else was was faulting on their loans, uh I was still locked into mine. 
and then after my five years were up and you know people were getting screwed after their five years because their interest rates would would be through the roof yeah mine was the exact opposite my mortgage went down like a thousand dollars because your home value had gone up no or? just because uh interest rates i was paying oh. like eight percent or something i don't I'm, I'm not a numbers person so i'm gonna get all these numbers wrong but i was paying a high interest rate and then it it automatically readjusted and as opposed to readjusting to 14 or 15 which is what was happening to some people who who lost their houses yeah. mine readjusted to like four wow and i was like this is great i guess i'm <laughs> i guess i'm staying in portland but i had a very strong vision at that point that i was done with music and i was done with film and tv and yeah. i didn't know what was next but i knew it wasn't those things i had taken a bunch of polaroids on tour and i had this um i had this idea that like i had had this idea s- years and years prior of bands not playing music because all of the photography i saw of bands was either live shots of them on stage bathed in light looking like rock stars yeah. or you know the setup promo shot where they're standing in front of a chain link fence or you know brick looking, wall yeah, brick wall looking oh. tough and you can almost smell the dumpster exactly, right next to them exactly and uh and i just started to amass these these polaroids of these these more candid moments and these more personal moments yeah backstage and at truck stops and uh you know stopping to swim in a river and just these like other little moments that happen on tour and almost calling back to your like earlier documentarian absolutely all of the stuff is connected and i had no idea that it was all connected yeah um, the Polaroids happened because I went to a show that was out of town and I forgot to take my camera. And I was like, the whole reason I came to the show was to take pictures and I forgot to bring my camera. And so I just went to Target and I bought a Polaroid. And then working in film, a lot of our castings were, you'd buy Polaroid film for the, the castings. Yeah, just quick and dirty. So I would always just add two or three packs. You know, I don't know how many we're going to need. You, yeah. s- you say seven, I'm going to say we need 10. <laughs> and then which, whatever was left over, I would put in my bag. And so I just had all of this, because that film's not cheap either. No. Uh, yeah, so I just had all of these photos and I had this elevator pitch that was, you know, what happens the other 23 hours of the day yeah. when you're on tour. And so naive, I moved to Portland and I was like, I'm going to make a photo book. There was this this publisher out of New York that had just done this really beautiful like Wilco coffee table book that Ooh. had actually won a Grammy or something like that for packaging. And it was just such a it was a, such a pretty artifact. And so I sent them an email to the info at address and was like, I want to make a book. And I sent them a link to my Flickr page and uh, had like, you know, 12 or 14 photos on there or something like that. And got an email back the next day that was like great let's do it oh my god i (laughs) I can't i can't imagine so ridiculous wow i mean there's so lucky and also like it like it was something i've been working on for years and years and honing in on this this very specific special thing and i knew when i was you know in certain places i would you know i went to um i remember this really sweet night we all ended up back at elliot smith's house and he was uh you have to take your shoes off when you in his house, but he had slippers for everybody. Oh, that's and, great. And he pulled out his lint brush and he was linting slippers. And I was like, this is a moment. This is a thing that happens that I did not know happened. I'm going to take a picture of it. Yeah. And then a few years later, he was gone. And I have this this beautiful moment captured that nobody else has. And I had, I had a bunch of those. I had hundreds of those little moments in time. So the, the I was human. really working towards something the whole time. 
that I mean, it's a really fantastic pitch. Like I, I like they're really I mean, even today, I feel like there's not like a lot of material around like because I mean, now it feels like everything's so curated, like what experiences you see of a band, even the behind the scenes stuff. is Sure. Like, posed and stuff but the, like yeah the part of the reason behind the, the scenes the other the other thing that kind of pushed me into like now's the time is uh urban outfitters started carrying polaroid stuff oh yeah and i was like oh no this style like this thing that i love because of its vintage quality and its haziness and and it's um it's kind of unexpected mistakes the lo-fi-ness of it yeah i i was like oh it's about to get really cool really fast and then um, hot on the heels of that was Instagram, which Instagram at first was all filters that were kind of made your your phone photos look like Polaroids. Yes. Very soft. Very. I mean, I, to, when I scroll back in my archives, it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is like not meant to look like a phone camera at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I just was like this. This moment is fleeting. And if like yeah. I, I kind of sensed that that stuff was losing value. There's also a lot of bands that, you know, were very cool to people of my generation that were breaking up and then kind of getting lost to the sands of time yeah this was this would have been like uh, 2000 early on yeah. yeah so like i mean yeah the book came out in 07 i think okay so kind of a pivotal moment in like especially the music scene here where like i mean portland are... was like there was a lot of bands yeah. that were the you know the shins were from new mexico and they moved to portland um at the time spoon had just moved to portland from texas oh yeah the Decemberists were here all along, or from Montana-ish, I guess, but, like, the Decemberists were here, Matt Ward. Like, there was a bunch of indie rock stuff happening here that was really special. Yeah, it was kind of the center of that moment, and, you know, in part because it was so affordable to live here. Sure, yeah, exactly. That's And uh, that was the other thing I learned from living in Los Angeles, because uh, I lived in the Silver Lake neighborhood, which oh, no. now <laughs> now we know as what it is. But at oh, the yeah. time, there was nothing there. It was, it was pre-gentrification Silver Lake. What was it? And was I it saw... just warehouse stuff? Like, is it one of those? No, types it was of actually like it was really sweet. There was it was Mexican restaurants, and oh, it's a lot of yeah. the stuff that is still kind of in the nooks and crannies there. There was a lot of gay bars. Yeah, it was decent businesses, but not hip businesses, if that makes sense. Yeah, like there, we had a coffee shop, but I remember the coffee shop was like a it was a coffee and cheese, so it was it felt very bougie to me. Um, it was yeah. pretty like I didn't really know what espresso was, but we would go there and see Zach from Rage Against the Machine sipping on his espresso each morning. <laughs> Stars. They're just like us. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. And so it felt very special to be there. But I saw like basically the neighborhood became cool. Yeah. And then I couldn't afford it anymore. And yeah. I got pushed out. And I saw the same thing happening in Portland where I was like, oof, I got to get in right now because everything's about to get a lot more expensive and it did yeah yeah and it's not stopped and i don't know where it's going from here like i i keep looking for the next uh the next portland um it's not tacoma i'll tell you that much no <laughs> are you sure there's a lot of no exciting offense, things tacoma. happening in i love tacoma. you you're great they've got uh gray they got a lot of gray. We have that. Yeah, we do have that. Um, but they, there, they have there's some good stuff gray. happening, and there, there's some good stuff happening there. But I do, yeah, no I do wonder about um, not my place. Like I'm sure it's happening, but like youthful community, I feel like is where we. we yeah. I had no idea how on top of the world we were at that age. We were we were little superstars in our town and had no idea how much power we held. Yeah. And now when I look at young people, I, and I'm sure old people, older people were doing this to me at that age. 
like, what do you want? Like, I'll give you anything you want. I'll help you. Like, uh, I, I just want, I like, I want, I want to see you grow. I want to see you make amazing things. Yeah. And I keep looking for like the people who are, who are doing the amazing things. I keep thinking about this too, because it, it does seem like one of the things that like was very pivotal to, to making this place possible was like, it was one of the last like low cost of living places and it just isn't anymore. Yeah. It's, but you think about like, well, where is it cheap to live? There kind of isn't anywhere, really. It's real estate has just become this weird, you know, pus filled blister of investment types. Yeah. And Airbnbs and all kinds of other and billionaires ruin for everybody. Models. Yeah, it's great. It's so capitalism really works and it works <laughs> for the little guy, especially. Um, but like, I wonder, it, it seems like a lot of the community that, that folks are forming is online now. And I, I do wonder. Like, what are the downsides of that? If if yeah, you are absolutely. just meeting people online, like you you lose those soft moments between people that yeah, just hanging out in a coffee shop watching watching them eat cheese. <laughs> yeah, so much of what happened uh, in those days, uh, I don't think we knew it was happening. Yeah, until it was gone. Maybe there, maybe there's some version of that now, but we were making connections, and a lot of those people who were you know, the weirdo artists of that time are now doing big, amazing projects. Cause that's, everybody yeah. goes on, like everybody grows as your career advances, like you get bigger and bigger projects. And I surrounded myself with musicians who I looked up to and designers who I looked up to. And now they're all doing amazing things. And I'm so fortunate to like be on the guest list for shows still and, yeah. and to be, um, whatever i have a lot of friends who are whose tv shows are coming out and to be able to have some connection to that world feels so special and unique and then yeah. i look back and i was like we were just having dance parties in our living room <laughs> yeah it's it's funny it's funny the arc of these things so you're but like you're saying that but as as you're where we are in your point of the story like you've just sold a book You've just sold your Polaroid book and it's getting published. It's getting published. And I thought it was like, uh, again, naivety is draw, like drives my entire life. But I just sat back and waited for the calls to come rolling in of like, you know, Urban Outfitters wants me to do their catalog or Wyden Kennedy wants me to come and and do a campaign for them. Yeah. And uh, that phone did not ring. <laughs> Well, that that happens too. Yeah. So, like, yeah. How did you then like move forward? Like, so that was my foot in the door with North. Was yeah. I? I made a fancy little wooden box and I put my book in it and I sent it to North. Oh, and, that's that's charming. Yeah. Like to actually do that, like welcome. Hey, here's me. Type yeah. Of it was packaging. Well, what happened was at the time I was I was dating this this woman who uh, was in advertising in San Francisco, and she was like, "You should be an art director." And I said, sure. <laughs> Did you know what that was, really? Or No, and I think I remember asking, you know, what does an art director do? And then she explained it. And I was like, yeah, I do all of that stuff. And she's like, I, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> you do all of that stuff. You should be an art director. And, and then I was like, great. Now, now I'm like, how do I do that? Yeah. Do you want to hire me? And she's like, you have your book. That's your, that's your portfolio. Yeah. And, that's a great point. Yeah. And so I did not have a portfolio, but I did have a published book at that point that I think there was a lot of photographers, especially who are so much better than I am, who didn't have a published book of photography. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so I kind of like bumped to the top of, of people's lists a little bit as far as uh, having a name. 
or a recognizable name at that point. Yeah. And I started at the very, very ground floor. I was a project manager. I was not even on the creative side. I was making very, very little money. But for me, that was my education. I didn't I didn't go to college for this specific thing. So I was just sitting in on meetings and seeing seeing how it worked and seeing how the strategy came together. Yeah. And going into a project manager role, it almost feels a little bit like what you were doing with your bands as as like tour manager too. like 100 percent. Absolutely. And that was my least favorite part of, you know, when I was in bands, I liked to be on stage rocking out. Yeah. It's and and then I would go on tour to as a tour part. manager and I was like, I'm really tired all the time and I just yeah. don't want to be here right now. And uh and I'm not good with numbers. This is not my strength. Like the, I these knew cats that my strength don't want to be hurt. Yeah, exactly. They hate I, it. I knew my strength was was in creativity, but I did not know how to convince people who had money to pay me yeah. that that was the case. How do you kind of get out of the project manager like mindset? Because that... I was very, very fortunate in that North was a smallish agency, and and I think other agencies do this. I don't have the experience, but it was very much, um, especially in pitch times, we called it all skate. It was a creative all skate where anyone could throw in their ideas, and it just so happened a few different times where you know there would be four. I'm going to call them normal, for lack of a better word, advertising campaigns presented. Yeah. And then me, not coming from the advertising world, would be like, we should do this other super wacky, weird thing. And almost every single time, that was the idea that would would get bought by the client or that would win us the business. Yeah. And so that became my superpower was not like working in advertising, but not having an advertising background. The left field pitch. And I hate advertising. So I was very much like... (laughs) I was like, okay, if we have $100,000, what's the best use of that money in a way that would get someone like me who hates advertising to like perk up my ears and pay attention? And that's a really fantastic mindset to be coming at it from. What projects were you working on at, at North? Like, uh, I mean, the thing that, that I remember kind of being a, a game changer was we were pitching this Cliff Bar business and we had hired a bunch of freelancers to come in to work on this pitch and we're paying them a lot of money and the ideas were so bonkers and in my mind bad i was like who is going to do this like this is just not an interesting idea but it was all it was big thinking oh and uh my creative director came to me the night before the presentation and was like i don't think we've solved it i don't think we have five ideas or we have four ideas in the deck i don't think any of them are, are the one. Oh shit if you have any ideas the brief was really simple it was just we just want to motivate athletic adventure yeah because cliff bar was kind of had become a snack bar but what it's really for is is meeting the moment like getting you over that 100th mile on your bike ride so i took that brief which was so simple and and i was like oh well then just like do that like like put some kind of inspiration into the packaging just do a little fortune cookie and you know have it say you know uh see the sunrise from a kayak and then these people oh. have an opportunity to like be surprised when they open their package. They stick it on their little cubicle wall. Yeah. They remind themselves. And then maybe this is, you know, Instagram was kind of growing at this point. So it's like maybe they take a picture of themselves in their kayak. And all you're doing is motivating athletic adventure. And it could be uh, go climb a mountain. It could be go play in the rain. Like all of these different ideas. And the idea, it took me five, ten minutes to get to that idea. <laughs> How and, long had the other teams been working? Oh, like weeks, weeks. Oh my God. And my creative director was like, that's it. That, that's absolutely, can you mock this up really quick? Can you like do some quick designs? And so yeah. I like made a little fortune cookie ticket and 
And Cliff Bar was notoriously um, a company that just believed in word of mouth and had never really spent marketing dollars on anything. Huh. And and their marketing team, it was the last idea presented. And apparently I wasn't in the meeting, but I heard that they were all just kind of like bored, glazed over for the first four ideas. And then everybody perked up for my idea. And they went to the vice president and the vice president was like, this is brilliant. However much money you need. So like everybody, Whoa. everybody was coming out a winner. The department was all of a sudden looked like heroes themselves. And my creative director came back to me and was like, you are an art director now. Like you just, you just made the leap. Like you just earned your way into the ranks basically. That flipped the the job completely over. Oh yeah. my God. That's huge. Yeah. It was a big, I mean, it ended up uh, immediately after that, the job was given to somebody else, not me, oh. a different art director who then got it over to the, I was going to say over the finish line, but it was it was really just like the next several hundred yards. Cliff Bar got to this point where they were going to change their factories to accommodate this piece of cardboard going into their food products. Oh, wow. And then it just became too complicated from a production standpoint to make it happen. And so they ended up just print, instead of it being a card, like a fortune cookie, it was just on the back of a wrapper, oh. which to me was a lot less interesting and exciting and so the whole yeah. as a campaign it kind of fizzled yeah you don't have to open up the cliff bar if it's just on the back of the wrapper yeah either. there's no surprise and delight and it's not <laughs> like you don't want a greasy wrapper hanging in your cubicle there was, there was a lot i felt was wrong with it but look how many cliff bars i've had today i will tell you being in that biz for for 15 years now i have not seen a single project that did not get dumbed down and ruined over the course of rounds and rounds of approvals oh, and no. budgets and like I, there's just it's so hard to to have a good idea still be a good idea at the you know when it actually comes out yeah there's stuff i'm proud of there's stuff that came out great but um but so often the fun thing or the, the thing that really sparks you about an idea doesn't ever make it across the finish line yeah i mean agency work is famous for frankensteining and you just you never you never end up with what you started with and Sometimes it's better, but sometimes yeah. it's I not. I love the collaboration. I was I was different than other art directors I was surrounded by in that if somebody said they wanted the logo bigger, I was willing to hear that out and ask like, okay, I guess we're like, you know, we're and it, to me, I also learned, again, this was a really great creative director I had. He was like, what they're saying is the logo is getting lost. Yeah. So you don't necessarily need to make it bigger. You could actually make it smaller and create more negative space around it, but it would draw your eye to that space. Yeah. So there's other tricks that you could do. So it it became, the, you know, that was the beginning for me of asking what the problem is and how to solve that problem. And that's, I felt like that was another strength that I picked up early on where I was willing to take, like I didn't get cranky about feedback. I felt like the feedback always came from a good place. And then my job was just to kind of decipher the language of like what you're asking for and what you're what you really want are usually two different things. That's and that's a really hard mindset to get into. Sure. Like, yeah. It's very normal to feel possessive, especially over like a creative idea and to feel like, oh, who are these outsiders who are giving me this silly feedback? That's but like to be able to put yourself in their shoes and look at it like that's really yeah. Another That's so great. Another career hot tip from uh from my experience is uh, I always had creative projects on on the the back burner on the side. I was always making things, and because I had these things that were that were purely my own, 
I didn't care if the print ad didn't look like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like I was putting yeah. my creative energies and, and my heart into something else. And, and then, you know, if you want your can to have lightning bolts on it, that's, that's, that's your jam, buddy. Yeah. You can, you can make that happen. Yeah. Um, speaking of cans. I know. I just, <laughs> just where my eyes were wandering. <laughs> We need to uh, we need to clarify. There's there's some cans that you designed in here. It's not yeah, uh, but yeah. So this is a th- this is a project that you also did at North. Yes, probably. I I think you were saying your most prominent project that you worked on. Do you want to tell folks what it is? Sure. Yeah. I I designed uh, these iconic. They really uh, are, though, is the thing. Guayaki yerba mate cans. Yes, you you've see seen them. all over campus. They're everywhere. Usually uh, held by some weirdo. That's always weirdos <laughs> drinking it. I say that with love. I'm a weirdo myself. I love weirdos. The drink for weirdos. Um, That's actually a pretty great pitch, to be honest. Yeah, it was cool. It it was, you know, at the time, it was just another project. I didn't realize how big it was going to be or that. Um, I mean, it's not so much that it was big. It's just that it is more than any of my other work. The The thing that I still see in my life. Most campaigns have a shelf life, right? Like a billboard yeah. is up for a month or something like that. And these cans are still still out in the world and still in the gutters all over the place. <laughs> and the, it, it's very iconic. I did, did like what did it look like before? I guess. Is oh, also the I question. wish I. It's hard to buy them in the store because they don't have they don't make them anymore. No, it would be so fun to see. You should see if you could pull it up on your screen. Yeah, I wonder. Awful. Let me. Sorry, Guayaki, but your packaging was so bad. They use this this font called Algerian. Do you know Ooh, Algerian? It's, it I was do. Like a, it was it was kind of a. It kind of felt like one of those type styler fonts. Like if your computer had twelve fonts on it, Algerian was like the fancy one. Also, the Patron logo uh, uses <laughs> Algerian. That's a great point of reference. Yeah, it is not uh, not a very classy typeface. Um, not a classy typeface. Feels, had, feels a little problematic. They had these big lightning bolts on their can. They had uh, they had this this logo mark that. Um, I just thought it was so dumb. I still kind of do. That's that's it's kind of an earth, but it's just South America. Yes. And and then there's a wreath of mate leaves around it, which I know they're mate leaves now. But when you see it, if you're, um, you know, just buying this thing off the shelf, it's kind of it just it just I don't know. It doesn't stick. No. So what happened was we pitched. They're like, we want some new packaging. And I went out of control um we did the whole packaging line but but at the time i did uh i man i made so many i never designed a can before in my life and i was having the time of my life designing all of these different cans and then same question as always was like what's the can i would want to hold yeah what's the thing that i wouldn't be embarrassed to be seen with and the work was so fun all of my coworkers were like whoa this is amazing like you really went for it and we hung them up all over the room and then Guayaki, all of them came in. There was like 20 of them. And they were just like, what is this crap? Like, <laughs> this is. Oh, no. And we're like, you wanted some new packaging. And they're like, this is not us. Like, this is, oh, this looks like a different brand. Oh. It was a quick lesson in uh, brand evolution. Even though they were a smaller company then, they had a fan base. And if you change the look entirely, then uh, you're going to lose a lot of that fan base. And also it's a scary step as a brand to yeah. just like change things. Because you don't, even if it is a better looking can, you don't know that it's going to perform 
it might just get lost on the shelf and that could be the thing that kills your company. Yeah, it's like getting used to a a paint color in your house that is not very good, but you're used to it and it's like part sure. of your part of your being in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, and they were all uh, uh I'm not going to say it. They didn't have great taste. <laughs> I said it. But they make I a beverage. The, oh, the, the, that taste is spot on. Their their beverages taste delicious yes. from a design standpoint. I just didn't think it was quite it was quite there, and I think they knew that, yeah. and that's why they hired us. But um, every step of the way, it was it we really it was baby steps. We really had to take these lightning bolts and like, okay, the lightning bolts have to stay. What can we do to make them just like tolerable? Yeah, and this wreath has to stay. What can we do to just make it tolerable? And this typeface. Like, let's create a lockup. Let's, you know, let's keep things kind of similar. It still has this little triangle in the A. Um, you know, we tried to hold on to some of the things that were working in the original packaging and just evolve it. And, you know, I still don't I still don't love it per se, but uh, it's definitely better than it was. I, I mean, honestly, like, especially looking back at some of those older ones, like, this is leaps and bounds. Leaps and beyond. bounds, absolutely. And, like... It is. It's pretty good looking packaging overall. Like it's very striking, and it is. You know, I think of iconic as being best, best of show or best in class. Yeah. And and it, it's not that, but it is iconic in that it like you see a Guayaquil can and you know that's Guayaquil. Yeah. And that is a feat in itself in branding. So, um, yeah, good job, me. <laughs> And them, they got it started. You yeah. guys, you guys are great. They they got there eventually. Um, so as you're working at North too, you're doing you're doing your own stuff on the side too. Like you're starting. Yeah, I was things. doing. Uh, I mean, I was always doing album artwork. Once I once people knew that you know that I could get that stuff done. There's always a need for someone who could lay things out in InDesign for the print files. Absolutely, and that kind of thing. You still got the connections too. Yeah. So I just I, yeah, I was getting the calls for that stuff. Yeah, I always just had stuff that I was just kind of playing with in the background. And that's where, you know, much later, that's where the Book of Dates came from. And then Filmlandia, which is another book that I illustrated for Sasquatch Books. That's a history of the Pacific Northwest. So I was very much, uh, and this a lot of this predates being married, but I was, I just, I felt so creative when I got off work at 530 that I would stay there until 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or midnight oh, wow. working on my own stuff. And I loved having access to the space. I loved having yeah. access to the photocopier and to the computers and the programs and the stuff that I couldn't have afforded on my own. And so, yeah, I was doing art shows. Like, yeah, anything I could get my hands on. I was I was creating logos for friends, little startup brands. I got a buddy of mine uh, was starting a perfume company. And I had no interest in perfume whatsoever, but I somehow got roped in as a partner and uh and now it's 11 years old and and is my full-time job now wow do you want to talk about the perfume brand because i don't think we've even really touched on what it is yeah sure too. yeah so a buddy of mine josh meyer uh was just looking to start a new thing he was obsessed with perfumes he yeah. could not find a perfume that he that he liked he 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 was like i feel like there's a hole in the market for people like you and i who like good food and craft cocktails and to have something that's not so uh, flowery and repulsive. Yes. And there's also an aesthetic, let's say, flattening in that world, too, like sure. we were talking about yeah. before so the that, recording. Yeah, so that's kind of what I brought to the table yeah. was was I was looking at the competitive market and, and everybody was just doing white labels and black type. 
And it was, you know, the trend then was like the perfumer's name and a number, Le Labo 17 or yeah. whatever. Like it was just kind of this, um, it was just so boring. And I actually told him no. I was like, I'm busy. I was working on my own project at that time that I was trying to focus on a writing project. And I was like, I just don't have time. This is a lot of work. You have seven packages. It's going to be so much work. Oh, and, God. Yeah. And you're just starting up like I, I would feel bad asking you to pay me the amount of money I would need to make this work with my, you know, how much time this is going to take. Yeah. And he was like, well, thanks for your honesty. I would love for you to try some because you don't wear perfume and you seem like someone who would who would if they found one that they liked. And so I went out that night wearing one of his perfumes and I got so many compliments. And this is back when I was single and there was just like girls scooching up next to me at the bar (laughs) and smelling my neck. And I was I was like, I'm in like this. is I'm sold. The product works. And uh and so I just started thinking about it. And there was one in particular that he had mentioned being very green and he, he likened it to like Ivy League school. It's very like like East Coast and Ivy growing up on brick buildings and tennis courts. And it's very austere and, and um, kind of old timey, great Gatsby. And so I took that idea and I was like, oh, I guess like we could do each of these after a book, like find the book that it's similar to and yeah. call it like the great Gatsby perfume. And then the creative in me very quickly was like, we can't use somebody else's creative idea. We can't use Great Gatsby. Even though it's probably uh, in the public domain now, It's it just felt wrong to take somebody else's great idea. But we could invent some imaginary authors and create books around those. Yeah. And so that's where the brand was born. And, and I had all these ideas where I was like the, the, you know, in retail, we could have these scent strips that are bookmarks. So you spray it to test them at the shop and then you put them in your purse and you've got these bookmarks and then you put them in your, in your book at home and you carry it with you and you get reminded of this smell. And this is how we're going to like, you know, build a fan base is, is by getting into people's lives this way. And so I had this whole concept for imagining authors and I went back to him and I was like, here's the deal. I'm going to do all of this work completely free of charge. You don't have to pay me a penny. I just want to be a partner in the company so that when you start making money, just peel off a little bit for me. Yeah. And my goal is to make you more money than you're going to make on your own. So you're still going to make money, but just peel off a little bit for me. And, uh, and that's how I will get paid down the road. I still, I had a day day job. So like I I didn't need the money per se. Um, I need it now. It's, it's a win-win, but it's also really courageous to do. I'm going to have some of this guayaki, by the way. Please. (laughs) Taunting me. (laughs) There's more beverages on this table than there's ever been. I'm I'm very much a three beverage person and I'm up to four, but two of them are water. So, yeah. Yeah. So I uh, and it was very much maximalism was the was I was like, I don't want to be a boring perfume company. I want I want it to be blasts of color and I want it to be weird and fun and intriguing and mysterious. And yeah, we've just over the years have have built this thing. And we've seen a bunch of copycats lately that are falling into that trap of um uh, oh, I'm not going to call people out. Let's not do that. But I've no. seen I've seen some people that are that are kind of taking other people's creativity and turning them into perfumes. And I'm and some of our you know we always have these like kind of fantastical notes. One of that that same um, soft lawn is the name of the Great Gatsby perfume that we ended up making. Oh, that's a good name. And I had this idea where I was like, hey, if we're going all in on this, like, why don't we make one of the notes on the back of the bottle tennis balls, fresh can of tennis <laughs> balls? Because 
Like everybody loves that smell. Yeah. And if you smell this blast of perfume, like it's kind of, you know, you, you still get that sensory blast. Like the two are similar. And he was like, they're absolutely similar. Yeah. We are going to do that. And now there's like fresh tennis ball scents like all over the market. All the brands have a fresh tennis ball scent. Really? And I had to go back and make sure. I was like, I'm pretty sure we had to have invented that. Yeah. And um, I tried to find something before ours and could not. So I'm still, I'm sticking with it. We invented huh. it. I have to think that the reason that the aesthetics in that industry got so flat was because they were all just copying each other. Mm-hmm. And so any new blood is just going to be like, ah, a shark's got to go to that. Definitely. Yeah. That's... And that's a fun place to be as a brand, right? To be the one that um, everyone's everyone's chasing and everyone's and it makes it it also keeps us on our toes to, yeah. to make the next thing different and more interesting than what's out there. Yeah. And so the perfumes are in these beautiful boxes with like these beautiful like uh, craft like books. paper. Yeah. Like and they have labels on the sides. And yeah, it's it's like I have never seen perfume packaging that looks anything like that before. Yeah. Some of that was not fully intentional like they started out in these kind of brown cardboard things because we didn't have money and so we were kind of going with the cheapest option possible you can keep the brown cardboard the same and just put a sticker on it put a fancy sticker we, we found this this winemaker and we're like let's get these stickers that are just a little bit nicer and yeah. spend our money here on these you know make stickers that feel like wine labels so that that's where the luxury comes from but then yeah. we're just going to slap it on this cheap cardboard and save ourselves a bunch of money with packaging and that kind of thing but it's such a gorgeous choice because you you get so much vibrancy and so much pop while also maintaining the consistency too. Like, Definitely, and some of that was accidental, and some of that was as the brand grew, we started to see where our successes were and how to change things. Yeah, and and like you know, I I liken all of my work to uh, my time in bands, and and I'm constantly making comparisons between the two, and to me, it just feels like the evolution from album one to you know, album six or seven, each of these releases, we kind of get a little bit better. We figure it out. The perfumes smell better than they did in the beginning. Um, so together we're kind of growing. And I think that's, you know, there was a moment during the pandemic when a few perfume brands came out that were showing up in my feed and looking really beautiful and making me very jealous. And uh, I felt, oh no, like they're coming for us. And and a couple of them have already closed down because oh. they, they they were backed by investors and they just went, all in on an idea. Oh yeah. And I think that our slow growth ended up kind of working in our favor. And and we've and people I think you know we have these fans who have stuck with us and because they're all books, I think people like to collect the bookshelf, like to have their have all of them. Well, that's the other kind of cool effect that you get from this idea that like a perfume box it just goes in the trash, but like these you want lined up yeah exactly and that was the thought from the very beginning was uh we wanted to get rid of signature scents it's so boring to just have one book on your bookshelf yeah and it's so boring just to drink the same drink every time you go out with your friends and it just made sense that you know seasons change moods change your intentions change and there should be a different scent to match every one of those different moods that you have you also brought in uh, a box for some bar soap that i think you were saying oh, yes. went a little uh a little awry so this is a great example of like uh uh i don't even know what to call it. like we were it was a cheaper product we couldn't afford to do the sticker on it so we printed directly onto the box I've this has been a side project. So I've been very, uh, you know, I work after hours and I send my partner the files and he kind of deals with the printer and all of that stuff. And, and 
this one's on me because I should have been talking directly to the printer. And also on the printer because who would send you that package and think that it's finished <laughs> and that it looks good? Yeah. But I we mean, had like a thousand of those made and and it just, I'm so embarrassed by it. And since this is a podcast about mistakes, uh, I just felt like that was a good thing to talk about is just seeing your work like all the way through to the end because so much happens in the finishing after it leaves your hands. It does. And it's always the thing that you feel like, oh, I can just let this one go. I I don't have to babysit this one as much. Yeah. That's the one that will like get you. I, I still to this day think of one of my greatest embarrassments in design being this project, this like multi-page booklet that I was... It was like a mailer that was meant to go out and arrive in mailboxes like the day after Thanksgiving, like the first delivery after Thanksgiving. And it was such a rush getting content. And I was like, okay, I can at least trust that the printer is going to do the right thing with this one. And everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. They were wrong spot colors, wrong yeah. page order. The thing didn't make any sense when you got it. It looked like crap. And I was just like, oh, God. <laughs> I thought I could. I didn't need the proof this time. Oh, wait. Yeah. You always, always need, need the, proof. the proof. You always need the proof. Please and it's so funny. I still don't know how it works. Like, yeah. so often we'll request a proof and they'll just send us a PDF. <laughs> that, and I'm like, this that's unfathomable still to me. It's it's really tricky. And I I feel especially for students, like, when we're starting out, like, oftentimes that PDF thing will will get us when we're you know trying to send a book project to press or something where it's just like you you really do need to see the paper because there's stuff that the paper reveals that you just can't yeah and like yeah i'm sure the pdf of that uh crappy soapbox like probably looked just fine yeah i i I also think of like one of the times that i had to like drive out to meet with the printer because like they sent us a pdf proof that didn't have the cover of a book on it and if i hadn't done that then the cover would have been the title page yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's not it. That's simply not yeah, it. And it's bonkers because when you do this stuff in huge numbers, like that's like that's just trash at that point. That's yeah. just throwing a that's a huge amount of waste. Um so I also want to take some time here cuz we've got we've got the Portland Book of Dates here. Do you want to give us like how did how did the Portland Book of Dates get started, I guess? Uh I mean, I'm always scheming. Like I have a app on my phone where like I just will have an idea uh, the most recent one is, uh, I think there should be a magic show where all the tricks are done in reverse. <laughs> so you like take a body and you put it back like a body that's a, a cadaver that's sawed in half and put it back together. Very satisfying. Yeah. And you like put the rabbit into a hat and then, I don't know, like <laughs> less satisfying. Still, still, still workshopping. Yeah. But, uh, I have, I have an app on my phone where I just, uh, every time I have a goofy idea, I put it in there. It's, it's oftentimes books, it's, it's music, it's design, it's all the stuff, it's brands. And it's also just kind of our dinner conversation with my wife. Like, what if, you know, whenever there's a problem in the world, like, what if, what if it was this? Yeah. Um, how could we make this thing better? And it's partly entrepreneurial mindset, um, None of our stuff has ever really made us money, so the uh, it's, it, I use entrepreneurial very loosely. <laughs> but the the Portland Book of Dates, we were just out on a date in uh, we were just like out on the Washougal River having a little picnic. We we bought this Pendleton picnic blanket and went out and had a lovely little lunch. Mm. And she was like, "How come we're the only ones who do this? None of our friends are, are out here on these adventures. We would go out every weekend and just take these drives, explore." 
Yeah. And I was like, someone should make a book of all the places that we go so that like people, like they just don't know these places exist. And I have a special eye. Like I would, it's always different, but I would flip through the Willamette week or the Mercury or Portland monthly or hear from a friend or see somebody's Instagram picture and be like, where is that? I'm just always, I've always been curious. And so over the years, I just amassed a lot of really special little places like Enchanted Forest and these, these, you know, there's people who have lived in Portland their whole lives and don't even know that Enchanted Forest exists. And so it seemed like there was a real opportunity to to make something special and and a hole in the market, which is what you're always looking for in, in an entrepreneurial sense. And then we pitched it to this company that used to do guidebooks. And they said, we don't do guidebooks anymore because everybody just goes to the Internet. Yeah. And things change so quickly. But these illustrations are beautiful. And we had a very convincing pitch deck that was, um, you know, we talked about, we, we got all of the data for like the number of Californians that were moving to Portland that would need to buy this book, the number of Airbnbs that would need to have this book on their coffee table, yeah, the number of like, you know, real estate agents who would, who would have to give this book as a gift whenever they sold a house. And, uh, you know, people who are, who are terminally tender and needed to, <laughs> oh, God. needed some fresh ideas. <laughs> And so, so I think that we, we had put together a very compelling pitch and they said, uh, we don't really do guidebooks anymore, but, but we're going to do this one. Yeah. And right after we turned it in, it shipped off, uh, all books. I don't know if, if this is common knowledge now or not. There's no color printing presses in the United States of America. So if you have a None book that all? is in color, oh my God. generally coming from another part of the world and, yeah. and these were printed in China and came over on a boat. And while that was happening, it usually takes a full year-ish from turning a book into it being on the shelves at the bookstore, yeah. partly because of, of all of that process. Uh, we had a pandemic. And yeah, and then we just watched uh, every week these places that we had written about so lovingly and carefully in this book were just closing down left and right. And we're like, oh, this is not good. This is why it exists on the internet and not saved forever in, in paper. Well, that was a that was a very unusually it was intense a, yeah. run. It was a different there. yeah. Hopefully, we don't have that happening again anytime soon. Fingers crossed. Uh, but w- what was surprising is a a lot of these dates were based around nature and yeah. and things that that aren't really affected by pandemics. And it's also uh, it's also kind of serves as a little bit of a history book. There's this there's a lineage of in Portland, especially um, when I moved here. I got the Chuck Palahniuk book yes me too that, that was like the gift that people got when you moved to portland in, yeah in that era fugitives and refugees I yes, think it's called. yes. and so uh it you know some of the, we just heard this week pied cow which is on the cover is closing and so oh, yeah that's pretty quickly I we're gonna need realize. a we're gonna need a version uh, a second edition but it is a moment in time and people still really loved the idea of it and there is enough in there um, that makes the book worth the small ticket price. And so, yeah, they they came back to us after that. Um, after the pandemic had happened and all these places had closed and we thought it was a complete failure, they're like, no, it's selling like hotcakes and yeah. we'd like you to do a Seattle version. And so we got suckered into that. And that is literally what I'm holding in my hands You have right the, only, the only copy that I have. Anyway. Yeah. And it, I mean, probably in, from the first run. We'll be in bookshops in November. It is gorgeous. Like you were talking about before we started recording, like just how much went into, because there's 150 illustrations in yeah. Portland Book of Dates. Um, and you had about 150 days. Yeah, I did the math <laughs> when it. I, when I, when we got the book deal, I, I looked at the deadline and I, I just did all the math and I was like, oh, wow, I have to do 150 illustrations in 150 days. Yeah. 
and uh yeah it was it was it was an aggressive deadline and it it never sounded easy but it ended up being far harder than i expected it to be there's a lot there's a lot i just missed out there. on a lot of life i there was a lot of a lot of stuff happening around me that i was missing out on because i was staring at my computer yeah um but you did it again and like there are <laughs> yeah. there's not a shortage of illustrations in the seattle one like i would say that there's just as many yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. It, they are gorgeous. Like it is a really really lovely book. And I'm not an illustrator. This was something that I I basically invented uh for this. I mean, I I didn't invent it. I was very inspired again because I I love other people's work. I'm a big fan of Rizograph yeah. work. Oh, yeah. And, and uh I had a couple of books um before before Kate came along and 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 started uh infiltrating Portland with <laughs> <laughs> with Rizograph designers. Uh I was a fan before that, but I I um I talked to her and I was I was like, should I do all of these Rizographs? Like actually print them and then scan them and and it was like, no, just it's it's basically fake Rizograph. I picked three colors and they're all multiplied on top of each other. There yeah. And before we pitched the book, we chose the Southwester was one of the dates we wrote about. And I just did a hundred different illustrations of the Southwester and just to try to find the style and, and nail down like what the vibe was going to be. And then this, we just picked those three colors and the, the kind of risograph idea of layering and a little bit of collage elements, you know, if if we're somewhere and we get a receipt or a, a ferry ticket or something like that, I would scan that in and layer it over it to kind of give some dimension to things. And uh, once once the guardrails were up, it, it, I found this is another amazing lesson I learned in, in my career is guardrails for me allow me to be so much more creative, yeah. which is ca- counterintuitive. No, it, but it's so true. It's so true. If you just have a completely open brief, it's terrifying and yeah. a nightmare because you don't know where to go. Yeah. But once you know, like, OK, you have three colors, you got to make it interesting. Yeah. Then all of a sudden... You're trying to figure out how, like, what could I do to solve this problem? Yeah. And and especially after, you know, when you get to Illustration 300, you're like, how do I make this fun for me? And so a lot of the Seattle Book of Dates, I, I feel like there's an evolution of just, like, having a, a little bit more fun with it and, and experimenting a little bit more. I think, like, what I also is kind of timeless about these is, like... You know, it's so hard to look back at guidebooks from the mid 2000s because it's just full of bad digital camera photos taken with bad digital Absolutely. cameras. This even even if the places like have ceased to be like the illustrations are still gorgeous. And thank you. Yeah, like, they make for such an engaging you know piece of work on the whole. Like it it really it's such a wonderful book to actually have and to have out like just to look at. Yeah. It's bonkers. It was, it was a silly idea that we had (laughs) and we've had literally hundreds of them and we've, you know, followed through on three or four of them. (laughs) You picked a couple of good ones, I would say, but, but it's the stuff that bubbles to the top. And like when you land on a good idea, you kind of know it's a good idea or you tell some friends about it and test drive it a little bit and, and it definitely was, it got us excited. It was also like, wow, we're doing all this stuff anyway. Wouldn't it be fun to get paid for it? Yeah. Wouldn't it be fun to be able to write off all this money that we're spending on going out on dates and exploring the Pacific Northwest? Hey! And I will say that Seattle book, because I know a lot of your listeners are in Portland, it's worth noting that a lot of the dates are just, you know, a couple of hours drives from here. So it's not, there is some stuff farther north in Canada and Whistler and that kind of thing that's pretty special if you have a long birthday weekend or something, but... I would find it useful even as a Portlander. Yeah. 
if people want to get the Portland Book of Dates or or I imagine pre-order the the Seattle Book of Dates, where where can they go to do that? You could go anywhere. Wow, that's so convenient. I know we can't pick favorites. My favorites is Powell's. I just did it. Yeah. Go to Powell's, go to whatever your local independent bookstore is. Don't go to Amazon, but if if that's where you are already, then sure, look yeah. it up. It's there. And if people want to find more about uh, the, the perfume brands. Imaginaryauthors.com. Please, if you don't wear perfume, it's so fun. I say perfume. This is another sticking point because it sounds very feminine. But uh, cologne is just, long story short, watered down perfume. Yeah. And was sold to men. It's a cheaper product. And our products are not cheap. Uh, they're, they are inexpensive, but they are made with high quality ingredients. Yeah. And, uh, and so unisex genderless fragrances they're so fun uh and it's fun we have this new package coming out for the holidays that's the complete work so you get little samples of every single of the 20 cents we have in our line and and we always say it's not about picking favorites it's about you know finding which scent works where and and when you know what 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 they do to you where do they take you what kind of what kind of travels does does your mind take you on and so it's fun to sit down with it and just experiment and and um yeah integrate them into your life. It's such a fun thing if you're not doing it already. Yeah, and to it's play the, with fragrance. The only perfume brand you're going to want lined up on your bookshelf too. Exactly. Um, and if people want to find out more about your work, where can they go to do it? You know what? Nowhere anymore. <laughs> That's good too. I stopped. Um, I mean, I still have this URL, but I I don't update it. I don't. Um. I mean, at one point, I feel like I, I, it was my calling card, and then at some point, I just didn't need a calling card anymore. And well, so, the internet um, changed. Oh, and... here, Instagram. I'm on Instagram. It's just at Ashad, A-S-H-O-D, and um, always happy to talk to uh, whatever, young designers, um, if anybody's interested in um, whatever. I always have been very gracious with informationals and... Just trying to to build community however I can and, and help other people's dreams come true as well as my own. That is a really valuable thing. And, you know, I, I hope some folks take you up on that because that's like that's such important stuff. If you are starting out to get feedback from like professional creative. Directors. Yeah. And, I'm, and part of it for me is I had people on the way who who took time out of their schedules and kind of lifted me up when I was younger. And I always try to try to make sure i mean that's that's what community is at the end of the day and and where i grew up there was no it was such a small community if you were an artist if you liked music it didn't matter if you were 65 or 15 everybody went to the same shows and so we were all part of that same community and i like to carry that on now and and just we're all we're all in it together I that is a really beautiful thing to to think about and to close on um thank you so much ashad this has been so much fun um also, thank you to those of you out there who are listening to this. You guys are great. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, if you like this show, uh, if you're a longtime listener, if you're a first-time listener, uh, why not give it a subscription? If you're a longtime listener, definitely give it a subscription. What are you doing if you're just doing this ad hoc? That's so much extra work. Smash that subscribe button! <laughs> Oh God! Oh, if I if I turned into one of those types of people, <laughs> oh no! Someone stop me! Um, take off the mask that is grafted onto my face, even though 
I'm I'm I guess I am begging you to stop. That's what he does. Um, anyway, if you want to do that, you can search for the words that are this show's title. Uh, but why not instead just pay a visit to our website? Did I do that? Design. We got the links to all the places right there. Um, on that site, you can also find some good, good images that go along with each and every episode, including this one. And if you want those images delivered directly to you, you can follow the show on Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn. Should you want to embarrass yourself publicly by showing support for us on those platforms, Anyway, this is Did I Do That? I'm Sean Schumacher, and as we always say at the close of every episode... Yeah, this one. Did I do that? <laughs> That's what we always say. Okay, bye! And then my biggest claim to fame, I think. Did you? So you made the yerba mate? Yeah, I designed. Can these. design. Holy hell! That's got to be a real like, because that's everywhere. That is everywhere. Yeah, when I did that job, I did not realize that was going to be the thing that I saw. I was actually uh, like miles and miles from anywhere, out in the middle of nowhere, on a road trip, and and there was no bathrooms, and I just had to pee, and and I pulled off into the forest and just like uh, peed at a little turnout in the road and there was a guayaki hiramate <laughs> can there that i designed just following you around and i was like man this is like yeah till the end of my days this is going to be <laughs> gutters everywhere <laughs> mm-hmm.